Logic and Larry. Christmas time is in the air. That was my own personal composition. Sleigh riding through the solstice. Yours truly, Aluciato the musician, which is one of my many different personalities. All the same guy, but with different iterations as the creative uh, creative energy should so require. It's a Friday. It's early December. Christmas is in the air. I'm talking to you while looking through a beautiful big window that's obscured only by the neon, beautiful, multicolored array of Christmas lights that caress the window pane. I see Midtown Manhattan. I see the Pulaski Skyway. I see the Passaic River. I see the Hudson River in the distance. Cranes building massive skyscrapers. I see Broad Street, Newark buzzing with activity. I see the Newark Winter Village, a beautiful, beautiful creation this year for the first time ever. With a beautiful Christmas tree, an ice skating rink, family activities and fun and Christmas lights abound. And I'm talking to you guys, and that's what I love to do, isn't it? And I apologize that this show started late this week. I've... Uh, been very very damn busy and i say busy would be an understatement but i can assure you that i have not rested all week since thanksgiving thanksgiving was a nice little reprieve for me i hope it was for you nice little time to chill out i had a cigar i spent great great moments with family and friends i indulged in food that we cooked and prepared i reflected on what i have to be thankful for which is so many things reflected quite a bit i engaged in some meditation and other things i listened to a lot of music and did a lot of soul searching but as soon as thanksgiving weekend ended i was back on my grind you guys know i'm always on my grind i was on my grind intellectually i was on my grind with work and i was on my grind charitably and i was on my ground you know grind sorry <laughs> so it's been a word i literally rushed home to get on here and that's why i'm a little bit late and i apologize but I had to take care of something that was important to me uh, that is going to put positive energy out into the world and help inject positive energy out into the endeavors that I embark on, which hopefully have a positive impact on society. Um, and I can assure you that, that everything I've been engaged in hopefully is putting massive amounts of good energy out into the world and involving other people in these good endeavors will hopefully continue to pay dividends down the road. And we can continue to do good things, which is what the Logic and Larry show is all about. Right? Now, last episode, we talked about the Rittenhouse case. I want to touch back on that in a little bit, uh, just in conjunction with some other cases. I really think that what we talk about on here, if you pay attention to the news and you pay attention to other commentary after we talk. A lot of the things we say on here, and a lot of the things we discuss on here wind up. People wind up catching on to what we were already saying a few weeks later, you know, because we are only speaking truth. We are only seeking truth and we are trying to put the good vibes and good energy and honest intellectual objectivity out there for the world to hear. We have a great guest tonight, Reggie Bledsoe, who's a great uh, another community person who puts nothing but good energy out there. But I do want to talk about some current events before we get there. I got a good little playlist, a couple Christmas songs, a couple dope soul and jazz joints. 
The playlist, as always, will be available after the show. We have a lot of people tuning in probably on the recorded version. We don't have as many in the live as we usually do. Those in the live, I love you. Thank you for joining me. I think people are kind of out celebrating the holidays, indulging in the holiday spirit. It's a later show. It's a Friday night. I understand. People are out doing things and they don't have time to tune in live, but they're tuning in recorded. And I appreciate your listens regardless of when and how you listen. I made one of my buddies uh, Spotify top uh, year in review things today. And he sent me the picture and I was in good company with a lot of jazz artists and other people. And that was dope. And based on the listens we're getting, I'm making a lot of people's top listens in Spotify and Apple Music and everywhere else. So continue to show your friends, continue to get the word out, continue to share the show, continue to listen and show your family and friends, especially around the holiday season. What we're doing here is important. What we're doing here is logical. What we're doing here is objective. We are spreading knowledge. We don't care what people think of us. We are doing what's right. And all we care about is spreading the honest truth. Now, anything I say in this podcast is strictly my opinion. It's only my opinion as a private citizen. I do not speak to you whatsoever in any professional capacity at all. I only speak to you as a private citizen. My views do not reflect the views of any other entity. They don't reflect the views of any other person or organization. Just me speaking to you for entertainment purposes. But you know we talk truth. This will be the last show we do before the new year. And and in between now and the new year, I'm going to do a lot of technological evaluation. And I'm going to be trying to get this podcast listened to a little more live by maybe changing the medium up. I'll have news on that as December progresses, but I'm going to be working on some things with the podcast. So this will be the last live show before the new year. So I want you all to enjoy Christmas time and just, you know, maybe I'll do a little quick excerpt before Christmas, but it's unlikely this will probably be the last one before then. Sometimes we got to take a break and just kind of recalibrate. It's been a great season this fall. And uh, I've had a great time being with you guys. So once we recalibrate and come back in the new year, I think it'll be great. Alex just joined and Alex, welcome. So first things first with the news this week. What do we have? What's what's the news trying to tell us? Well, the news is trying to talk about so desperately. They want so desperately to talk about this, so I have to address it. They want to talk about the Omicron. Is that, am I saying it right? Omicron? Omicron? <laughs> I, I was never in a frat, and I wasn't good at Greek or Latin. Duh, Latin. I, 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 don't, I don't know what that is. Omicron virus, you know, the strain, new strain of uh, COVID-19. The news is trying to make it a big deal. You know, it's it's proliferating in South Africa. And now they're saying there's some cases in Europe. We've got travel bans back in place, which are obviously going to affect the economy. Um, and now we're saying that there's some cases, a case in New York, and there's cases in Canada, and everybody wants us to talk about it. And we'll talk about it. I mean, look, I actually got into a little discussion with somebody on... Um, got into a little discussion with somebody online about this because you know you got the one camp of people where they're like oh my god 
the new variants here, the new strain is here, head for the hills, we got to shut everything down again, we got to revamp our vaccines, this is going to be deadly, everything's going to shut again. Then you have the other side who are like, you know, who cares, you know. And then the people, the vax, the anti-vaxxers, you know, they're always, every time there's a new strain, the anti-vaxxers have to come out, right, and say, well, if you're vaccinated, why do you care? I guess the vaccine doesn't work, right? I guess the vaccine is not as effective as you said. Why would you be worried if it works? If it works, what do you have to be scared of? Oh. Guys, I already broke it down so many times. I broke it down, what was it, like a month ago? With my analogy with the bulletproof armor, but your neck was exposed. I mean, it's not its not rocket science. And I love this song, by the way. This is my joint right here. Like, I just love this. This song inspired me to write like a whole book, which you'll get one day in the future. But anyway... Guys, the, the thing to pay attention to is with these variants, right? What is a variant, right? Variants are mutations in a virus. And the reason we're getting the variants is because not enough people are actually vaccinated. So that, you know, it keeps mutating because it keeps circulating. But it, it's not hard to understand when a new variant comes out. And this is what I was talking to this individual about on Facebook. And he didn't seem to quite get it. When a new variant comes out... Where is it mutating? Well, it's mutating on the spike protein. What is the spike protein? Well, the spike protein is the mechanism on the outside of the virus that enables the virus to connect to your cell and then infect you with the virus, right? The spike protein is what allows the virus, it allows COVID-19 to infect your body. So the mutations are occurring on the spike proteins, and as the spike proteins mutate, the, the spike proteins are looking for more ways and more advanced ways. Hence, they're mutating to become more advanced in order to better infect you, to be more contagious, to find better ways into your system so that it can continue to reproduce itself and then continue to spread and proliferate through the human population. Right. So the mutations occur at the spike protein. Now. What does the vaccine target? What is the vaccine designed and, and, and injected to do to your immune system? The vaccine targets the spike protein, right? I mean, it's this game of chess. The spike protein is stopped. The spike protein is, is prohibited from infecting you. So the virus mutates its spike proteins to try to better infect you. So, of course... When you have a vaccine that targets the spike proteins and the spike proteins are mutating, then every new variant by necessity, by logic, because logic and Larry, the spike protein will be better able to infect you. And if the spike protein is better able to infect you and the vaccine is targeting the spike proteins, then of course, with each new variant to the spike protein against a vaccine that's trying to counteract the spike protein, every new variant will be better at getting around the vaccine. It doesn't mean the vaccines don't work at all, right? It just means that the new spike protein gets around it better. So instead of 75% of vaccinated people not catching COVID, it'd be something like 60% of people who are vaccinated don't catch COVID because it's a little better at getting around the vaccine. It's not 100% defeating the vaccine. 
It's just a little better at, you know, combating the vaccine. It's like anything, right? You have a great NFL defense, right? Great NFL defense. And the reason your NFL defense, football defense, is so good is because you run a certain blitz package, a blitz package that's so stifling that the opposing quarterback every time doesn't have enough time to scan the field and goes down in a sack, right? Now, a smart offensive coordinator could start to design an offense that counteracts the blitz and recognizes the blitz, and and because a certain linebacker is part of the blitz, gets a a slot receiver open for a quick five-yard hit. That means they start to devise a way to beat the blitz. So they might get a couple first downs, but they're not completely beating the blitz to the point that they're hanging, you know, 10 touchdowns a game. They're just finding some ways that now instead of never moving the ball, they're moving the ball a little bit down the field and they still have to punt, right? I keep coming up with these analogies to try to explain these things better. So now the new variant makes the vaccine a little less effective, Okay, a little less effective doesn't mean it's not effective, doesn't mean it doesn't work, doesn't mean we have to head for the hills. Basically, what they've found in the studies in South Africa with this new variant is it's similar to the other variants in that it is more contagious than the Delta. It's more contagious than the original COVID-19. So it's better at getting around vaccines and infecting people, but it, but the vaccines still mostly work. Most people still won't be infected by this variant, but it's a little better at getting around it. So a little more people than Delta will be infected. And they've also found that people who are vaccinated still defeat the virus relatively quickly. And so if you're vaccinated, the chances that you'll be seriously ill or wind up in the hospital are still severely diminished, right? So we can play this game where we continuously are worried about a new variant and one side of the spectrum. It always seems political. It shouldn't be, but it always is. One of the sides of the spectrum is like, oh, my God, head for the hills, close down the economy, run for your lives, put on your masks, get terrified. And the other side is like, see, it doesn't matter. We should all just die because, you know, who cares about vaccines and who cares about taking precautions? Just live with it. It's never going away. What's the truth, guys? As with most things on Logic and Larry, what's the truth? The truth is somewhere in the middle, guys. Yeah, like we're going to have new variants, just like the flu. I mean, they don't come out every year. The flu has a new variant and every year they have a new vaccine to try to counteract that flu variant. But you don't hear every year. Oh, my God, it's the uh, Zeta flu. The Zeta flu is going to just, oh, my God, the Zeta, oh, it's spreading. It's in uh, Europe. Oh, we found another. The Alpha flu, too, that's in England. It's They don't talk about it like that because it's just with us. It's always going to be with us. If you want to get vaccinated with the updated vaccine to protect yourself, you should. But the flu is going to be around. The flu is going to kill people. And, again, I'm not comparing COVID to the flu. I'm not one of those knuckleheads who are out here comparing COVID to the flu who act like it's the same thing. We know that COVID has a higher fatality rate than the flu. We're not pretending. But now that we have vaccines that are effective, now that we have effective treatments for COVID, over time, not necessarily right now and definitely not when it first came out, but over time, COVID will wind up like the flu where it's always with us and it's always going to be with us. But 
We can counteract it by adopting new and improved vaccines, by innovating our vaccines, by reissuing our vaccines, by having vaccine boosters. We can continue to combat it. So it's going to be with us, but we don't have to be terrified of it. It doesn't have to stop society. At the same time, because there's a new variant that's more effective against the vaccine does not mean the vaccines don't work in the first place. You should actually continue to get boosters and continue to get vaccinated so that you don't wind up with that variant and you don't wind up getting seriously ill. That's the lesson that we should all learn from that. But that's like one of the new news stories that's out. It's a big, you know, the new variant. Everybody's scared. The truth is you got to keep getting your boosters. Pay attention. We have the technology now with the vaccines where even if we have new variants, they'll be able to manufacture a new vaccine that can counteract that variant. So I wouldn't be too scared. Society will continue. COVID is winding down. That's the truth. Society will continue to function. We will be okay. Don't be too alarmed by the sensationalism in the news. Don't do it. Don't let it get you. Don't do it. Don't fall victim to it. All right. You'll be okay. All right. Just take precautions. You'll be all right. So the other the other thing in the news was this Dobbs v. Jackson Women Jackson Women's Health Organization out of Mississippi. Who would have known? Who would have thought another abortion case before the Supreme Court? There were arguments this week. And there's a lot of alarm that the Supreme Court may, in fact, finally overturn Roe v. Wade, just get rid of Roe v. Wade. There's a lot of alarm. Here's the thing with these Supreme Court discussions, right? Every time there's a Supreme Court argument and it goes before the panel and they hear oral argument, these reporters, they always come out with all these articles and they try to predict based on what the justices said, based on what the justices asked. They always try to predict what's going to happen, you know, what the ruling's going to be based on the questions the judges were asking. And they always they're always alarmist. Right? There's like, oh, my God, the justices are going to turn overturn Roe v. Wade based on the questions. They seem willing to do it. They're going to do it. Fact is this. We don't know what the Supreme Court is going to do based on oral arguments. And if you're an attorney, and I don't like to keep going back to this attorney thing because people are going to be like sick of listening to Larry. He just says he's an attorney and he thinks we should all listen. because. It, but, but the fact is, like, there's certain things with attorneys and judges and things where you kind of know how things go and the regular, you know, lay people don't always know. A judge asking questions is not always indicative of how they're going to rule, okay? Sometimes judges who are on your side will ask you tougher questions and press you harder because they're trying to get you to answer the counterpoint that they know they're going to have to argue against, right? They think you have a good argument, but they already know what their colleagues are going to argue or how they're going to have to get around a counterpoint. So they're pressing you to come up with that counterpoint because they want the answer. Like, why should I not do this? They want you to bolster the argument. Not always. Sometimes they're really challenging you because they disagree with you, but you never really know what they're doing. So these Supreme Court reports that predict, you know, the end of the world every couple months for rights are not something to necessarily get too terrified about until the actual decision comes out. So it's look, it's alarming. I, I mean, everybody understands that if you're a, if you care about more progressive ideology, if you care about a women's right, a woman's right to choose, 
then you will be a little alarmed about the current composition of the Supreme Court, right? There's nothing, there's no way around that. It's a conservative Supreme Court. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg probably, you know, God rest her soul, maybe should have retired when Obama was in office. It created what it did. Now that's a very, you know, conservative Supreme Court and people are understandably scared of what they might do with Roe v. Wade and as well as some other decisions. But you can't live your life that way based on speculation and news reports until the actual decision comes out. We don't know what they're going to do. So I'm not going to make a prediction either way, but I would say, you know, with that being in the news this week, let's just do our best. And I'm not, I'm not minimizing the concern in any way, but let's do our best to enjoy the holidays and kind of let the decision come out when the decision comes out and let it, let it just play out. Right. And, and speaking of the legal system, I'm going to, I'm going to discuss a couple legal system type issues today. The other thing that happened today, which I don't know, you know, it's not always in the first of all, I'll say this too: the, the, the Maxwell trial is like front and center. I mean, so everybody who was a conspiracy theorist about Jeffrey Epstein and was obsessed with him dying and saying, you know, one thing I know, you know, sun comes up. Next thing I know, gravity exists. And next thing I know, Epstein didn't kill himself. <laughs> always talking about Epstein didn't kill himself, this and that and, and whatever else. Right. Um. And and what do you mean by safe haven? So Siren's saying something in the chat. I will say in discussions I have been having the safe haven argument is kind of off the mark. That I don't even. I I, I got to be honest. I got to plead ignorance on that. Like I've been I've been so busy. I don't even. I haven't followed that closely. If you elaborate, I'll get back to that in a minute. But uh, um, so you know the Giselle Maxwell case which is Epstein's partner, which is going to delve pretty deeply into the Epstein stuff that's happening. All these conspiracy theorists that were up in arms that Epstein, quote, didn't kill himself or, or maybe he did kill himself. They're not posting or talking much about the Maxwell trial. And the Maxwell trial is delving pretty deeply into Epstein's inner workings and delving pretty deeply into the Epstein case and the Epstein scandal in general. And it's it's raging on, and we'll, we'll have a whole show on it when more revelations come out, when the final verdict comes out, and there's more to see with that trial. But just when I, as I get ready to go into legal stuff, um, as I get ready to go into the legal stuff, I just think it's interesting that, that the media and the people pick and choose which legal cases they want to pay attention to based on sensationalism and what else. Like, so Jeffrey Epstein kills himself and everybody's up in arms that we're never going to have an investigation of the inner workings of what he was doing and what happened there. But when an actual trial is going on that's investigating and going through the inner workings of what happened with Jeffrey Epstein, none of them want to talk about it. Like it's it's back page news all of a sudden because people seem to only be attracted to things that advance their ideological proclivities rather than the actual truth. Right. So if Epstein allegedly kills himself and maybe there's a cover up and I'm a conspiracy guy, I'm going to just harp on that nonstop. 
But when the actual trial of Maxwell happens that actually delves into it, I'm going to ignore it because it counteracts the conspiracy angle. And maybe I'll find out the extent of the of the actual criminal activity. And maybe it doesn't involve all these people like Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and whatever else. And maybe it's not that juicy. It's still a hell of a story about a rich and powerful men in conjunction and collaboration with other rich and powerful men. And I shouldn't just say men since Maxwell herself is a female and other females were complicit in the activity. It's still a hell of a scandal about powerful people getting away with abuse and exploitation, which is an ongoing problem in this country. But when you, you know, strip it down to its bare minimum reality, it's all of a sudden not as juicy, so I don't see many people talking about it. I just think that's an interesting thing to say. And and Siren's elaborating just to go back on the safe haven law. Oh, I know what a safe haven law is. Right, like you can drop a baby off that's unwanted at a police station or a fire station or a hospital. That's the safe haven law. I do know what that is. And the argument is that States that have if a state has a safe haven law, i.e. if you have a baby you don't want, you can relinquish your rights easily and quickly and without consequence that somehow negates the necessity for abortion laws, even in cases of rape, incest or other unwanted situations. And she says that's not a good argument. I would agree with that. Right. I one hundred and fifty eight percent. Look. Women should not have to carry a pregnancy to term and give birth or risk their own health or the baby's health or a life that's going to be impaired in any serious way, physically, emotionally, etc. At the behest of the state or the behest of the man or anybody else, it's her body. And up until a very certain point that's already been litigated relentlessly and already has been determined in many situations. There is no reason for a woman to have to carry another human being to term that is a part of her that is not a viable separate human being until a certain part of the pregnancy down the road. Just to satisfy some twisted sense of morality amongst a an obsessed contingent of our society. Right? I've said this for a long time. Anybody who's still obsessed with abortion, if that's their main issue, that's their only issue, that's the thing they care about the most. If anybody's still obsessed with abortion and that's all they care about at this point in our history... You really got a problem, right? You really got a real issue. We're so far beyond that. I'm still baffled. I got to be honest. I'm baffled in my objective mind. And I'm always objective, right? And I always say that the center doesn't necessarily coincide with the middle of two farthest points. The center is just what's most rational all the time. And sometimes the center falls right on the left perspective. Sometimes the center falls right on the right perspective. Sometimes the center is far away from both perspectives. The center is just a rational thing. I don't understand how rational people are still fighting this. 
They're still trying to take away women's rights in that way. This is well established. This is an enlightened society. We're beyond that. I'm baffled by people that are still fighting this as the main issue ever. I think there's a little bit of craziness to that. I will never understand that. I will never be able to get down with that. But yet we are here and we're having news stories about the latest SCOTUS argument on Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization out of Mississippi. And that's where we are. But we'll talk about that when we get there. But speaking of legal things, here's a really, really, really interesting legal event that occurred just today, that occurred just this week. A really interesting legal argument, a legal facet that was brought to light in the news and around. And I don't see that much discussion, but there's a little bit of discussion about it, and it's really interesting. The... Oxford High School, which is in Michigan, there was an Ox, another high school shooting. And I thought about this, too. It's crazy. Like the first Columbine happened when I was a kid. Right. Columbine, the Columbine shooters were like my age. So they would have been grown men by now. And I, there was a documentary with one of the kids mothers recently where she was going through all the problems and all the anguish and all the the backlash and and everything she got, all the scrutiny she got because her son was one of the Columbine shooters. And the documentary was really enlightening because it, it went through her life, like what she was dealing with. Could she have known? Should she have known? And and her suffering. And it was really an interesting and really powerful documentary. But it's interesting because I was thinking about like these school shootings, like when Columbine happened, I was a kid. And at that point, it was like, wow, school shootings, what like a new phenomenon, what like an astounding, terrifying reality that we're going to have school shootings, right? But now in 2021, kids that were not even, they were not even a twinkle in their father's eyes for, you know, lack of a better term, just to go back to some old school nonsense saying, they weren't even a thought in their parents' minds when Columbine happened are still engaging in these Columbine-style school shootings. Like, it's it's this interestingly unfortunate cultural phenomenon where this school shooting MO, motif, has been handed down in our collective societal consciousness to the point that kids that weren't even near being in existence when Columbine happened are now still partaking in these mass shootings, which is a real disappointing and unfortunate thing. But so this Oxford shooting, the kid unfortunately killed four of his fellow classmates. And the interesting thing about this case, though, and Siren pointed it out, and and Siren, I'm going to once again agree with you here. Once again, agree with you. This case, interestingly, which really has never happened in another mass shooting event, like not another school shooting, the parents of the Oxford High School shooting suspect, the parents have now been charged by the Oakland County prosecutor. And I love this song, Marvin Gaye, Trouble Man. Man, this is this is me, especially in the winter because I think of Four Brothers and just it's just a winter song of a dude just out there just trying to shuck off trouble as best he can. This is my joint. But anyway, the parents have been charged now 
Parents have been charged with involuntary manslaughter. They've been charged with involuntary manslaughter for the deaths of the four individual students who were killed in the shooting. And now this is an interesting legal question, right? Because it's really hard to hold another person responsible for your intentional acts, right? And you're talking about involuntary manslaughter. You're talking about a a form of homicide. This particular crime carries 15 years in prison. 15 years in prison if you are convicted of involuntary manslaughter. 15 years. So it's a considerable thing to discuss as we discuss our legal system and as we discuss legal parameters and those types of things. Should parents of mass shooters be able to be prosecuted for involuntary manslaughter if their child engages in the shooting? Well, like with most things on this show, and I discuss when I with the legal system, which again I believe in our legal system. I think our legal system, as it's gone through these changes and these ponderings and these you know revelations over centuries, has really continued to try its best to perfect and better itself over time. I think again, this is another situation where it's a case by case situation. It's a case by case basis, right? In some cases, the parents shouldn't be charged because they had no clue. They couldn't have done anything better. In other cases, the parents or somebody else was in a position to stop it and they enabled it or allowed it to happen. And one of the things people are calling for, like the school officials in this case to be charged, I'm like, that you're getting a real slippery slope. You can't just find scapegoats. Like, oh, the principal should have kicked the kid out of school. The teacher should have barred him from class. What I, you can't just find scapegoats on individual people when our society, our society bears a collective responsibility for this violence, right? Our society enables the proliferation of guns. Our society enables mental health issues to persist and fester in various communities and people unchecked which leads to all these problems. So we can't just find scapegoats when when an individual situation happens, hang them out to dry, end their lives, and then walk away with impunity as if we are the righteous ones when our society collectively bears responsibility for it. But I will say this. I will say this. In this particular case, there is seems to be anyway, based on what the prosecutor laid out, There seems to be ample evidence that the parents in this particular case, because it's a case-by-case basis, in this particular case with Oxford High School in Michigan, do bear responsibility for this young man's actions, and here's why, right? Interesting point with Siren with Rittenhouse saying, you know, Rittenhouse's mother was responsible for him to an extent because she drove him there. She should be charged. And that might have some bearing on this case. That's the one thing you said tonight where I'm like, I don't disagree per se with your assertion about like overall sentiments. Um, But I will say that, you know, Rittenhouse and I know you you, we've talked about the verdict. I'm not going to air out your opinions on the Rittenhouse verdict. You can do that if you choose or not. Um, But 
think with Rittenhouse, regardless of how he got there, I think we all agree Rittenhouse shouldn't have been there. It was better if he wasn't there. Rittenhouse himself has said he wished he never went there, but it's still a self-defense case when you look at the evidence. It is what it is. But here's this case. Let's talk about this Oxford shooting case real quick. So, interestingly, first of all, the parents bought this kid a gun for Christmas. They bought him a gun for Christmas, and there's nothing wrong with buying somebody a gun for Christmas, right? The, the country does have a long history of guns. Some people would argue that you got to teach kids gun safety early on, and this Alec Baldwin case that's going on, you know, there's a lot of parameters to that. I'm not going to delve into the Alec Baldwin case tonight, but I will say that anybody who's ever been around firearms before and anybody who's ever been trained properly on firearms before knows that there's certain rules inherent in operating firearms you know, you always assume they're loaded. You always clear them. You always check them. There's certain things you don't do because you prevent accidents. Now, I've said before, and I'll say again, the Alec Baldwin case is a little different because it's a it's a movie set. So he's got to actually look like he's firing it. You know, in normal life, you would never point to any gun at anybody, whether it's loaded or not. But different. But at the same time, there are other safety protocols that gun enthusiasts learn. So there is something to be said for teaching young children how to operate guns responsibly. If you're in a family that does engage in hunting, if you're in a family that does have guns around for whatever reason, there is something to be said for you know, getting your young people around firearms and teaching them the proper way to use them, right? However, in this case, it was interesting. They bought this young man who was only a young teenager a gun for Christmas. The mother posed with the son on Christmas, like mommy son time with the gun and all that. And that's fine and well and good, except for the fact that this kid showed very early on and for a long time, this kid showed signs of being mentally unstable, this kid showed signs that he might not be somebody you should entrust with a firearm. He showed signs that he might be a dangerous person with a firearm. And so she knew it, they knew it. In fact, maybe the smoking gun, no pun intended, that occurred was a teacher found the young man searching for ammo, searching about guns online while in class. The teacher then emailed the student's mother and said, this might be a problem. He's searching ammo. And again, another song I just love. My vibe is dope tonight. It really is. But even though we're talking about difficult subjects and I don't take them lightly and we're talking about, you know, nuanced, logical things, you've got to have the right vibe. And it is December. And I, I appreciate you guys being with me. And I really dig this vibe. So anyway. And as usual, the playlist will be available. Um, but look, the, the teacher emailed the student, the student's parents, and said, look, he's searching ammo and all of this stuff. And she never responded to the school at all. She never said anything to the school. But the, the prosecutor's office in Michigan, in Oakland County, Michigan, the prosecutor's office has text messages where she didn't respond to the school. She didn't bother responding to the school. She didn't bother answering the school. She didn't bother taking the school seriously at all. But what she did do was she texted her son, LOL, I'm not mad at you. Just don't get caught. Right? LOL, I'm not mad at you. Just don't get caught. Then later, 
When the young man had drawn violent images and said, there's no help for me, something along those lines, people are going to die, like something along those lines, don't directly quote me, with bloody images in a notebook, the teachers brought his parents in for a conference to say he should be suspended, he should immediately get mental health counseling within 48 hours, and the parents basically rebuked the school, ignored what they said, refused to take the young man out of class, refused to check his backpack even that he had on him, which maybe the school bears responsibility too, but again, not to the level of manslaughter. What do you expect the school to do? They're trying. They refuse to help with the school's concerns. They refuse to take it seriously. They made him stay in school. They knew he had access to a gun. And by the way, the gun that he owned for his birthday present was kept in their drawer, not secured, easy for him to access without any safety precautions for him not to get it without them knowing to the point that when the school shooting news broke the father texted him don't do it so they knew it was a possibility that at least he was unstable they knew he had easy access to a gun and that's a problem and that's why in this particular case they were charged with involuntary manslaughter because they could have so many times prevented it They bought him the gun. They put the gun in his hand that killed four young people's, killed four young people, took four young people's lives. They provided the gun. They laughed at the school when they raised concerns. They encouraged the behavior, said don't get caught. And then they shrugged off the violent mental instability and and violent tendencies. So they certainly bear some responsibility. Now, Dan Spafford, who I don't know if he's listening now, but he's a big gun advocate, and he and I disagree on some things. We agree on a lot of other things. He's one of the people I know that are a big advocate for laws that require you to secure your weapons. A lot of states, including some of the most pro-gun states, have laws on the book that require you require you to secure your weapons. Michigan doesn't have any statute at all, one way or the other, on the law. Somebody said there's, they don't have a weak law. They don't have a strong law. They don't have any law about that. That's a problem, right? That's a problem. We've got to do something common sense wise about these things. And maybe this is the first step. Maybe charging somebody who's blatantly irresponsible with providing a gun to somebody who's mentally unstable and shouldn't have a gun and then enabling them to access it without them knowing. Maybe charging them with a serious crime is the first step towards accountability for these situations. If society is not going to collectively come up with better ways to get people with mental health treatment, to come up with better ways to prevent people with mental issues from getting guns, to come up with better ways to stop the proliferation of guns at the people that shouldn't have them, then maybe this is the only deterrent. Maybe this is the only method available to society to deter people from being careless with weapons in the hands of people that shouldn't have them. Maybe this is the only way. And, and looking first, when I saw the headline that she charged the parents, I was like, oh, God, is this going to be some overstepping boundary of a prosecutor, some abuse of discretion just to appease a political, you know, contingent? But when I read the facts, I was like, no, this is this is a solid case. Solid case. And it makes sense, because if we're not going to do something, then I guess the individuals who provide it. And here's what's really sad, right? Because what are we always talking about on this show? What are we constantly, constantly, constantly hope, you know, harping on on this show? 
We're constantly harping on people being so ideologically and politically driven that they don't consider the reality of the situation. They get so bogged down in their own political beliefs that they don't allow themselves to think anymore. And I, you, Look, I don't know. I'm not claiming to be in the heads of these people. I'm not claiming to be in the heads of these parents. But don't you think... And there was some report that she wrote an open, the mother of this kid wrote an open letter to Trump thanking him so much for defending her Second Amendment rights. And I, I would say her admiration for Trump or her support for Trump obviously has no bearing whatsoever, nor should it ever have any bearing on any kind of criminal prosecutions. Somebody's political beliefs are their political beliefs, and that's their business. 100%, I think. That, right. And Southern Bell, welcome to the studio. But look, at the end of the day, don't you think a little bit that they're like joke, like, haha, don't get caught with the ammo, that they were ignoring the school's concerns, that all these other things, you know, don't you think a little bit, don't you think a little bit that their political ideologies, that their political stubbornness had something to do with the fact that four people are dead now? Don't you think so? Like, Making fun of the school, like, haha, don't get caught. Rep your gun. We're giving you a gun. Like, don't you think it was a little bit politically motivated? Like, I don't care what these school people say. I don't care about these people with gun restrictions. Like, I'm giving it to you. You have access to it. Screw them. I'm not going to take them seriously. I don't care about this manby pamby, mushy gushy mental health. Don't you think that their political ideologies had something to do with them being so careless and so stubborn with the gun? And that's unfortunate. That's so because I don't think it's just a right wing thing or just a left wing thing. I think depending on the issue, people are so entrenched now that they'll literally look like legitimate, practical things in the face and just ignore them just for the sake of like being political, being stubborn, being ideologically, you know, averse to something else. That's how sick the society is right now. Right? Like, I bet these people are so averse to any kind of gun control, any kind of, you know, mushy, gushy mental health, you know, attention in schools, any kind of disciplinary action by the schools, any kind of public intrusion on their private decisions by schools, that they enabled this. They put the gun in the kids' hands. They didn't secure the gun. They didn't listen to the red flags on purpose just because of their bent, twisted belief system. And... They're charged not based on the belief system, but they're charged because it manifested itself in actions which traceably, verifiably, from an evidentiary standpoint, had a direct impact on four teenagers losing their lives. And that is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing that happened. And Hanin says, well, why can't the kids just go through metal detectors like they go through at the airport? Here's the thing. In inner city urban schools, they do make the poor kids go through the metal detectors like it's in the airport. And you know what? I understand why, because a lot of those schools have problems and they want to keep weapons out of the schools or trying to protect the students. But that goes to the, you know, the state oppression and the 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 institutionalization of children at a young age that people are constantly complaining about happens to unfortunate students in those districts. And if we expanded that beyond those 
areas where crime is a big problem all the time and we just made every kid in America go through metal detectors because we're scared of shootings even though shootings are a low probability in most places now we're just instead of getting to the heart of the problem and and looking at our mental health issues and looking at our gun access laws with regard to people with mental health issues in the home and looking at our laws regarding securing weapons with children or mentally ill people in the home instead of doing that we just want to take a pass as a society and say, we're not going to deal with that because it's too hard. What we're going to do is just put metal detectors in every school in the country. We're basically throwing up the white flag at that point. We're basically saying, hey, we give up. Our society so violent, so irredeemable, so beyond redemption that we're just going to put metal detectors in children's schools because we got no answer. We're just a terrible, violent society. And look, I'm not an idealist. You guys know that. I'm not ideologically pure. You know, I think some of the far left liberals are are full of it. You know, I think that. But even I got to say that's one step too far. Practicality is great, but that's one step too far. We can find practical solutions without having to put metal detectors in every school. And maybe one of the ways to do that is to charge people who are this reckless and careless. And Hanin, I, I agree. Like, for now. That's why right now with schools that need the medical det- metal detectors, I'm all for it because I don't want kids in those schools to be at risk unnecessarily. That's why sometimes police officers in schools, it's a controversial issue, but maybe they should be in schools sometimes because of, you know, the necessity for it, unfortunately. I'm not somebody who's just against it all the time. You know me. You need prisons, you need this, you need that. Like, you can't get around it. We don't live in an ideal world. But, but you know, we should be able to find solutions that don't involve that. And if we can, we don't think you need an ideal world to do it. I think in a normal world, you could. But, hey. So speaking of all that stuff with the, the court system, and, and we talked about now what happened with those people who were rightfully charged, again, case-by-case basis, so as you guys know, last week, right before Thanksgiving, it was all I knew. I, I was very confident that it would happen. And it did happen. And I, I thought it would happen. And I was glad that it happened. William Roddy Bryan, Greg McMichael and Travis McMichael were convicted guilty for the murder of Ahmad Aubrey in Georgia. I knew that was coming. I'm so damn glad it happened. The justice system worked. They're facing life in prison as they should. In fact, now recently there was a, a fundraiser for William Roddy Bryan, which is, you know, he's an interesting aspect of it because, again, case by case, right? The McMichael family, the two of them, they were convicted on almost all counts, right? Almost all counts. And William Roddy Bryan was convicted on the most serious count, the murder count, but he was acquitted of other other counts because – If you look at the facts and you look at the evidence, which we always say we do on this show, if you look at the facts and you look at the evidence, William Roddy Bryan was involved in a different way. Like like the McMichaels, they went out chasing Ahmaud Arbery. They initiated the chase. They were the ones armed. And Bryan followed them, and he's the one who actually took the video. He's the reason the video actually ever got it to the public, which is the reason they were convicted for the most part, along with their statements, by the way. Which just shows the deep-seated vigilantism and racism that still exists in our society. Like, the racism is so deep in our society, and the racism is so deep in some people. 
that they truly gave statements which actually incriminated themselves because they thought they were justified in what happened, even though any objective person looking at the situation would know that they were not justified, even close to it. It was murder. But the way the case went, and so William Roddy Bryan is an interesting case because he had a GoFundMe up after his conviction to try to raise money for his defense, and GoFundMe took it down because GoFundMe said, hey, we're not going to support somebody who was convicted of a violent murder. We're going to take that down. And I understand that. But he is an interesting situation because some say he just pursued him. But here's the thing. The evidence shows and showed that William Roddy Bryan joined in the pursuit of Ahmaud Aubrey, that Brian tried to, to pin him and cut off his path several times with his truck. So he was rightfully convicted of murder because he participated in the murder. And here's the thing about the Ahmaud Aubrey case, right? And this is what people really have trouble understanding between the Ahmaud Aubrey case and the Rittenhouse case, is that in the Rittenhouse case, everybody's out there for a fight. But the evidence clearly shows Rittenhouse running away twice from people chasing him. And they even testified. The guy with the gun in the Rittenhouse case testified. A, the other guy with the skateboard, I think he was going to hurt him. So if he thinks he's going to hurt him, then Rittenhouse obviously thought he was going to hurt him. And the video evidence shows Rittenhouse trying to run away multiple times and being attacked. Doesn't matter what led up to it there because they're all there for a fight. They could all be there for a legitimate purpose. They could all be there for an illegitimate purpose. But at the end of the day, he's running away. They're chasing him. He's running away. They're trying to hit him in the head with a skateboard. He's running away. They're pointing a gun at him. You look at the Ahmaud Aubrey case. This guy is out for a jock. He goes to an abandoned house, which, by the way, he's done several times before. He's never taken anything. And even if he did take something, it doesn't warrant anybody detaining him who's not a police officer with guns. But he's not out looking for a fight. He's not out in a riot zone. He's not armed. He's not setting fire to anything. He's out jogging. And how many curious people like, you know, I'm in part of all these groups in Newark that do like photography and things. They go to like abandoned buildings. They go to construction sites. They go in, they take pictures, they look around. It's normal. He goes into this site that's under construction for a long time. He looks around, he chills while he's jogging. He doesn't have anything to steal. He's not doing anything. He's jogging. And while he's out for a jog, these three strange white men in the deep south, mind you, these three strange white men start chasing him. And they have guns and they have trucks and he tries to run away until he's exhausted. In fact, one of the defendants testified in a statement that he was finally tired, Aubrey, because he kept running away and he finally stopped because of how tired he was. These four guys are chasing him down, chasing him down. And then they point a gun at him. They're not cops and not anything. They point a gun at him and they try to take him under capture. Of course, he's going to fight back. They are the aggressors there. He's jogging. They chase him relentlessly. They point a gun at him. He doesn't know who the hell they are. They can't be the aggressors and then claim self-defense in that case. 
And if you don't understand the difference between that case and Rittenhouse, I don't know what to tell you. Rittenhouse, one guy had a gun, one guy had a skateboard. He's running away. Just like Arby was running away. Different case. I'm not comparing the two. I'm just saying. Two different cases. And Arby's killers were rightfully convicted of murder. And they will spend the rest of their lives in prison, as they should. Now, Rittenhouse was rightfully, based on the facts that I saw, acquitted of murder because rightfully he had a self-defense. And it was proven in court. And that's what court is for, right? Like, So everybody wants to say, oh, court's terrible and the system's bad. Like, Look, the system is only ever going to be as good as its inputs, right? And part of the problem with our with any system, any system in, in human history, in the universe as it exists today is you can have all these idealists and all these brilliant thinkers and all these, you know, outside the box theorists that come up with these systems and they could come up with them great, but these systems always assume the best, right? They always assume that the best inputs will go into the system that will enable the system to function at an optimal level based on their design, right? Except we constantly put bad inputs because we don't have enough good inputs or not enough training or not enough people that care about being good inputs into the system to actually run it. And the system's only going to be as good as its inputs. I truly believe that our systems are good ones if you put them in a vacuum. And I truly believe that we've suffered for all of our existence as a nation with Bad inputs in, in, in a lot of situations. And these bad inputs have resulted in unjust and in, inequitable results. But we can continue to perfect these things with better inputs. And so when you look at the Rittenhouse case and you look at the Arbery case, that's two cases that were super politically charged in a very close span that both turned out with the right decision. Now, many people were with the Rittenhouse case. They wanted to be angry. Right? And, and my show last week got a lot of listens because people understood, like, hey, he's, he's speaking the truth. He's speaking the truth and not a lot of people want to. And when I came out with that podcast, I was breaking down the facts of the Rittenhouse case. And people were angry. And some people were angry as hell. They, they, haven't list, they didn't listen to that show last week. They argued with me online. I don't think they've only been lukewarm since. I don't, even know if they're, I, don't, I don't know if they're listening now. I think they're not. Just because I was dared to say the truth about Rittenhouse... And I predicted the truth with with Arbery. They tuned me out. They don't listen anymore because I because I was so real they couldn't handle. It. That's a shame. That's a real shame. We got to rise above again, like this political thing that trenches us down when we can't talk anymore. We can't be real. It's funny to see over the last two weeks a lot of people have come out with articles and other posts and other things publicly saying basically, hey. The Rittenhouse was rightfully decided. The Arbery case was rightly decided. The George Floyd case was rightly decided. Wow, look at all these examples of cases that were rightly decided, right? And some people have taken that time to say, well, let's explore the reasons, right? Was it because there was video in all these cases? Probably yes, right? We've gone centuries without the benefit of videos, without the benefit of body cams, without the benefit of all these technological advances. I mean, we've gone centuries without the benefit of DNA, for instance. And again, if our inputs, no video, you know, trusting the wrong people, no DNA, bad evidence, faulty things, if that was the input, then the outcome was not going to be good. But now 
with the input being videos that clearly depict what happened for everybody to see for themselves, with the input being DNA, we are now coming to better results, more equitable, more just results. The system is working because the inputs are better, right? And some people are exploring those things and rightfully pointing out, wow, imagine if we didn't have the video, right? And that's, that's fair to point out. It's fair to point out. But we have other people. There, there is a group of people, and I've been talking to you about this for a while now too, guys. There are a gr- There is a group of people in this country who literally, like literally, literally, make their living they're literally eat off they literally make a living writing about or selling books about or speaking about they literally make a living off misery and they literally make a living off saying that every system and 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 idea we have is fundamentally flawed unjust and can never be good and it doesn't matter what input you put into it it's always going to fail they literally make a living they literally gain all their notoriety off railing against everything that we have at our disposal to try to do justice. They literally make a living off it. And so I found it particularly disturbing that some of the same people railing against Rittenhouse, like they would have tarred and feathered and executed Rittenhouse, even if he didn't deserve it under the law because it fit their political ideology. And those same people, when the Ahmad Arbery verdict came down and those men were found guilty, there were people, sadly enough, sadly enough, there were people out in the world who were, dare I say, a little disappointed because they want to make their living being angry and protesting and saying the system's terrible. When the case came out the way it should have, they were at a loss for words. And so I saw articles saying, you know, that wasn't a justice verdict. That was political pacification. They only, the jurors only found them guilty to pacify the masses They didn't care about what was right. They only found them guilty to prevent anger. You know how much of a, like, so those 12 people that sacrificed all that time and sat and watched all that evidence and did the right thing, they're beneath that. They're they're not human. They're not justice-minded. They didn't do their duty. They only pacified the masses. The prosecutor in that case who did an excellent job and bringing it to justice who indicted the former DA who was corrupt, they didn't do anything. They were just pacifying the masses. Like, If your reaction to justice and your reaction to the right decision, if your reaction to a good and right thing happening is to downplay it and spin it negatively, then you yourself are a purveyor of negativity. You yourself are a pusher of negative energy. You are actively contributing to our demise. You are actively contributing to our constant perpetual downward spiral into negative energy, right? Everybody's always saying, don't bring negative vibes around me. Don't bring negative energy around me. Don't bring negativity around me. Don't bring too much pessimism around me. If your primary objective is to take the right decisions, the justice decisions that do exist, that we can all look to as examples of progress, that we can all look to as examples of positivity, that we can all look to as examples of the truth prevailing despite political pressure and take that and spin it negatively just to advance your narrative, then we should be suspicious of you. Then you are the one that perhaps is motivated by selfishness, is motivated by keeping your own notoriety and your own lucrative preaching practice alive rather than 
advocating and recognizing when society, when the people, when your fellow humans do the right thing. That we should all be suspicious of. And I think we should start looking at, I saw an article that said, oh, it actually admitted, hey, Rittenhouse was decided correctly and Arbery was decided correctly and the George Floyd case was decided correctly. But you can't look at those. You can't look at them. They're just the examples. You can't look at them. No, no, don't look at them anymore. There's a lot of bad cases happening every day. There's a lot of bad cases. So many bad cases. Like the ones that we all know about. Yeah, yeah, they were right. But like, but, but don't worry. There's so much stuff you don't know about. There's so much other stuff you don't even know about. That's really, really bad. It's really good because his whole, I looked him up. His whole writing, everything he writes about is how horrible the system is, how horrible our justice system is, how corrupt it is, how it's always wrong. So these these examples of it being right are inconvenient for him, this writer, right? But I've long told you that I believe that actually, despite what gets notoriety in the press, actually our justice system and the men and women who are in it and, and the things that happen and the jurors that serve every day and the judges, yeah, of course there's – Bad things that happen, of course, is injustices. But actually, I think these cases are actually indicative of the bulk of the cases that go on. Contrary to this person saying, ignore the evidence, ignore it all, ignore what you see. Trust me, everything's terrible. I say, I've been telling you guys, pay attention to the cases that are big because they are more indicative of what's going on. Actually, There's a lot of that going on in real life that you don't hear about. There's a lot of the right decisions, a lot of innocent people getting off, a lot of guilty people getting convicted across this country all the time because the men and women who participate in the system are doing their best. And it's not right 100% of the time. And there are a lot of things we need to fix. And there are a lot of inputs that are inequitable that need change. And there's a lot of innovation we can do with our criminal justice system and our society and everything else to fix the inequities and the problems that we have. It's not perfect. Maybe it never will be. But I actually think these cases were decided properly and they are more indicative of our system doing more good than bad. I truly believe that. And I'm being more of a purveyor of positive energy because we need more positive energy. We need more positivity in this world. And we can look to the justice. Look, it's, un- it's terrible what happened in all these cases. No one should ever lose their lives ever. But at least justice was done at the end of the day. And that's something we should all be proud of instead of just poo-pooing and being mad at. And then the final thing I'll say about all this stuff, before I bring our guest Reggie on, who's another purveyor of positive energy, by the way. Rittenhouse, who was acquitted lawfully, lawfully acquitted now, lawfully acquitted. There are students at Arizona State. He was taking online courses at Arizona State University. There were student groups at Arizona State University who are petitioning the school to ban him from school that don't think he should be allowed to go to school with them. Don't think he should be allowed to get an education at ASU, Arizona State University. They say he doesn't deserve an education because they say he's a killer no matter what the courts say. In fact, in Arizona State University, even though he was only an online student and now he's withdrawn from classes, he there were students who were saying he shouldn't be allowed to even go to school. In fact, the, the group, the main group that said it was the Students for Socialism group of Arizona State University. That's what their name is. Students for Socialism. They said the only reason he was acquitted was because the justice system was corrupt and it's flawed. He's a murderer. He deserves whatever. And he can't go to school with them. And I've been telling you guys for a while about 
I'm not saying go on a witch hunt against socialists. Let me tell you something. One of the best professors I ever had, one of the most brilliant, greatest, most informative professors I ever had was at Rutgers Law School. This was an individual who was a blue collar guy who came up in a different state in Appalachia, who went to Harvard for certain degrees, went to Princeton for other degrees, was a brilliant man. I admire this person very much. He's a great human being. He's a great person. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. And he taught me a whole hell of a lot about a certain facet of the law. I'm not going to say any deeper because I don't even know who I'm talking about because it's not fair to him. And I'm not that kind of guy. But in class, he flat out said, flat out told us, and he should be allowed to, and he was allowed to, and I'm glad he is. He said, I'm a communist. He said, look, I'm a friggin' communist. He said it. He said he's a communist. He's, he's a communist. It's fine. Communist. He didn't say socialist. He said communist. And guess what? That's fine. Because he can speak his mind. He's a free to be a communist. He's free to have any idea or ideology that he wants. But one of the things is he never demanded that we all become communists just because he was. He told us who he was, but he taught us intellectual, informative, factual subjects without demanding that we agree with his ideology. He was a brilliant person who was able to teach and able to convey facts and knowledge without getting his ideology in the way. And he's allowed to have his ideology. He's also allowed to teach and no one should restrict him from having his ideology, but he should not push his ideology on anybody else. And he didn't. What's scary about this new generation of young people saying they're socialists, whatever, the Arizona State Students for Socialism is they're telling you straight up. They're straight up telling you these students in Arizona. They're saying, hey, we're students for socialism in Arizona, and we don't want Rittenhouse in school with us. He doesn't deserve an education because we don't care what the facts are. We don't care what the verdict was. We don't care what lawfully was decided we just don't want him to get an education because ideologically we've decided in our twisted moral sense, we've decided despite the facts, despite the systems in place, despite the societal parameters that we've all agreed to govern ourselves by in criminal cases, despite all of that, we don't want him here. We want to strip him of his right to be educated. We want to strip him of his rights because we don't like him. And you know why they should, you should be suspicious of people like them, and I've been saying this for a while now, is because they're intellectual and ideological hypocrites. That's why. Hypocrites. For instance, do you think that the Students for Socialism in Arizona State would be against reentry programs for convicted murderers if they didn't murder somebody in a politically charged way and they didn't view him as a Trump supporter or whatever? Like if it was somebody from a disadvantaged neighborhood, and he was convicted of murder, do you think the Arizona Students for Socialism would be against a reentry program, giving him maybe a free education at Arizona State? Or do you think they would say he's a murderer, he doesn't deserve an education? Right? Do you think they're against people who are convicted of crimes in general getting an education? Do you think they would restrict books from Arizona State University or, or the degrees awarded to, to, to convicts or inmates? Of course they wouldn't. They don't care, though, about being consistent and saying everybody deserves a second chance. Everybody deserves an education. They only want everybody to have an education if it's somebody they agree with from their ideological perspective. If it's Rittenhouse, you might as well just hang them 
for all they care because he doesn't agree with their political ideology. He doesn't jive with what they think great people are. But if you're somebody else from a different background, of course you deserve whatever you can get. You're a socialist. I mean, everybody deserves everything, right? Except people we don't agree with. And that's where you got to be skeptical of socialism. And look, I'm not saying you have to be against socialists, just like my communist teacher. They should be allowed to have a group called Arizona State Socialists. They should be allowed to express their views about Rittenhouse. They should be allowed to protest the university about Rittenhouse. They should be able to say whatever they want. I'm just speaking intellectually, ideologically. I'm saying question their intellectual viability if they're being so hypocritical and be skeptical of them being so righteous all the time and just allowing them the platform to act like they have, you know, a a monopoly on what's righteous and what's moral and what's just when they're being very hypocritical. Be wary of that. I've been saying that for a while now. It's, it, it deserves our skepticism. It deserves our skepticism. But anyway, on this beautiful December and this holiday season coming to us. And I just want to say President Obama, who I admire very, very, very much. He gave a commencement speech at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, where he gave the speech in the Rutgers football stadium. It was a great speech. He was a sitting president at the time. And President Obama said because the Rutgers students had protested a, a speech by Condoleezza Rice. They'd protested a speech by Condoleezza Rice and to the point that she didn't even get to speak. And Obama said to Rutgers students at the commencement address, he said, the way to argue with somebody's ideology is not to silence them. It's not to kick them off campus. It's not to, to deny them the platform to speak. It's not to deny them the platform to argue. It's to let them make their point and then counteract their point in public. That's how you win an argument. That's how you show that your ideas and your values are superior to somebody else's is by giving everybody the floor and then refuting them in public not by denying them the chance to even be there. And I still stand by that ideal that President Obama put forth. And I think we are going the opposite direction if we are going to continue to purvey negative energy and try to marginalize and silence any instance, any event, any case, any ideology that doesn't agree with what we say. That's a dangerous path to go down. And I hope we don't do it any further. But again, to be positive, we had some court cases that came out correctly. It's the holiday season. It's a terrible time when kids are getting, obviously, unfortunately, shot at in their high schools. But at least there are ways that people who enable that activity are being held accountable. And on Logic and Larry, we will continue to discuss these issues and to have these tough discussions and to persevere in the face of people that want to knock us off our objectivity and want to knock us off our belief that facts exist outside of ideology. And we will continue to chase those facts down. Now, without further ado, I want to bring on our guest today, Reggie Bledsoe, who is a great person, just to shift it back into positivity, as I always like to do with these guests. Reggie is an awesome person, and I want to bring him on to discuss uh, some of the things that, that he's been able to do and uh, to just to just get him get him involved so i'm gonna i'm gonna give him a call i'm trying to work the skype thing now and i don't know why it's being uh pain here hold on let me make a call all right come on let's call somebody all right let me i'm gonna call reggie in now it's my little skype thing going 
see if we can get him on the phone. Hey, what's going on, Larry? How are you, brother? It's Larry Crane. I'm sorry it's late, man. We had a little uh, technical difficulties going on, and then the show dragged a little bit, but uh, I'm glad you still uh, gave us the time, even though it's a little later than we discussed, to, to join us today. Um, and I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, no problem at all. So look, so Reggie Bledsoe, man, you you are, have been kind of my go-to person in the city of Newark and the greater Essex County, just as like a community, I don't know how to describe it, but like a liaison, man. Like I wanted to donate like toys one time and you knew exactly who to call. I had people that wanted to volunteer their time and you linked that up and they got to volunteer. You've just really been out in the community and you've been like a, a, a positive influence. And one of the things on the show we're always talking about is like, don't just talk about things, but actually put your money where your mouth is and make a positive impact on the community. Can you just kind of tell the listeners in general, like who you are, like, give me your little condensed bio, like who you are, where you're from, what got you, you know, kind of involved in, in being, what got you to a point where you have all these contacts and I can reach out to you and, and, and we can do good work, but just the condensed thing. And then we'll get more into your activism and philosophical stuff and all that. Definitely. Um, just before I begin doing that, I just like to thank you for creating this platform you know, for listeners and, and those who, who engage with you on this platform to discuss, you know, real issues, um, but not in a, in a biased way. Yes. Laying out facts so that people can really know what's happening. And then it's pretty much uh, you issues beyond what we're taught on media. Yes. Uh, but a little bit about me. Um, my full name is uh, Reggie McBledsoe, but everyone calls me Reggie. Um, I'm born and raised in the city of Newark. Um, lifelong resident was educated uh, throughout the North Public Schools, um, starting, you know, my early as a Clinton Street and then being educated through Marshall Middle and then going on to North Tech High School. Right. Uh, what really led me to be very involved in, you know, political activism, um, through volunteerism, joining campaigns, uh, et cetera. Uh, from, that op- from that opportunity, um, which my principal, Rudy Kisela at the time, he reeled into us the importance of being responsible and actually taking on roles within our community. Um, so from that opportunity, I had the opportunity to go to Montclair State uh, to study political science. But uh, uh, all of my work and my passion always, you know, driven me back to the city of Newark. And, you know, through, you know, my mentorship, and mentorship is so important uh, yes. in the profession you're seeking to be a part of. So I had the opportunity to be mentored by um someone who was my neighbor and who was very involved politically um, where I lived at the time, High Park Gardens, which is uh, one of the older cooperative developments in the central world of North. Mm-hmm. Um, very politically active, politically active community. Um, and her name was Lonnie Watson. Um, she's the president of the board there. Uh, but at the time, she was serving as a county freeholder. So she brought me into the wings and, you know, showed me that, you know, anything worthwhile is, is, is based off of service, and, and I've lived by that that model uh, to this day. And, of course, volunteerism and, and serving other people has, uh, has given me the opportunity to, you know, build these relationships to, to be able to pick up the phone and call our county clerk or to know which nonprofits in the, in the city of Newark are hosting certain events or who need assistance um, from great people like yourself, Larry. Um, that's how I've been able to do it. I love that. And that's, that's, 
That's a really interesting biography. And it's, it's makes a lot of sense based on who you are and how I know you. And you said something that I thought was particularly interesting just now, you know, you said that life, you know, it's kind of built around serving people in service. And I think what, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot is like people have a misconception and they call it quote the system. And obviously systems have flaws and all that, but like people tend to see those who are involved sometimes in politics or organizations or, you know, government as, you know, us versus them. But, but you are saying something really important, which is like, no, there are people involved in those things where they're involved because they really want to use their talents and their abilities to serve people. And I want to ask you this question. Like I, every time I call you with, I'm calling you too as like a private citizen, right? I'm not calling you as like professional. It's like Reg, I live in Newark. I need, can you help me with this? Can you help me volunteer? Can you help me get in contact with somebody? You know, tell us more about like how you see the importance of those who have connections and those who have the ability and education. How important is it for people like yourself to be a liaison to other people who don't necessarily have that access? Like how vital is that in a community such as Newark to have that that person to talk to who can help connect them with people and how much does that you know how far does that go in trying to establish like trust between the community and those with the power to do things well i would say that that is vital um that you have persons that you can you know connect with um that can definitely you know i like to call it uh guiders or the individuals who are able to peel back the layers yes um, government as you know, can be very complicated. It's difficult, you know, even for the average person who's a taxpayer um, to, to really understand, you know, how government operates uh, in itself. Yes. And, you know, I think, you know, being a person who had the opportunity to study political science, I've used my role as not making things more complicated. And I'm, I'm always uh, driven by the model that, you know, Results matter, and rolling up your sleeves and getting things done um, is easier than uh, BSing people and, and having people <laughs> yeah. um, continue to revolve in the same cycle. Where you know, I, I always believe when I served for a council or a person and, and, and various other elected officials that you know your job isn't done until that person comes back to say thank you. And I always mm-hmm. viewed you know, the opportunities I've been given, um, you know, pretty much uh, to give it your all. When, when you give it your all, um, you're not only, you know, helping that one individual. And I, some people in our communities view it as, oh, they're just going to keep coming back um, asking you for help. Right. But you have to think of it as a world where you're empowering someone. Yes. You, you're giving them um, the faith that government can work on a local level. And that there are people that really care about, you know, the needs of people. And, you know, when you successfully do that, um, then you've actually created the type of citizenry that you want. Um, You want those folks that are aware of, you know, how neighborhood services is collecting the garbage or, you know, what role does the tax department do? So I really look at my role as an educator, um, but also a person who guides people on how government works. And I don't think that political scientists, professors are the only ones that can teach people how to leverage 
um, power amongst your government, but also holding your government accountable and make sure your government works for you. That's a great, great, all of that I agree with. And, and majoring in political science myself, I mean, we were taught by the people I was taught by anyway to engage. I mean, that was a key component of our education was to engage. Do you think that in general across the country, you know, that engagement and, and kind of the skill set of being more of a, uh, a liaison or a, or a facilitator should be a bigger part of like political science curriculums across the country because it's a, a key component of what we're trained in shouldn't just be the inner workings, but also how to convey that and give more access to other people that aren't educated in that way. Do you think that's important? Absolutely. Um, I know because I laugh about it all the time because we're, we're normally taught um, on a local level, but also you know in our community, Newark and in Irvington, mm-hmm. that government's about serving people. So, you know, when I had the opportunity to actually study um, the, the, the major political science, and you hear all these things like theory and practice mm-hmm. and, you know, um, pedagogy, um, how uh, political philosophers theorize government. And I'm like, this is not what I was taught. And this has nothing to do with what happens every single day in the city. And actually, during those times, you know, the needs of people weren't as great. I mean, you have people who ruled nations and you pretty much did what everyone told told you to do. You did everything that the leaders told you to do. And if you didn't, you were punished severely. Right, but yes. But people are a little more independent. People, you know, have resources and people have the power to vote and people, you know, they have uh, what we call, you know, the internet and, and news and all of this, this information out here where they're able to think independently, well, what we call not independently, but think they have what, what the media outlets would have their masses yes. of people think how they want them to think. But in these times, you know, there's always people saying that the government should be doing this, but you know, it's a disconnect. And I think that, um, when we start teaching the practice and the actual role of government and, and you know, that, that in itself is a, a political philosophy in itself where, you know, people don't think the government should be as involved and engaged. And, you know, I personally believe that because, you know, on a local level, if you're not picking up, uh, even the most conservative person who does not believe that it's limited government, if you don't pick up their damn trash, but I think that we definitely need to start modernizing, you know, how political science is taught, you know, how government is operating and, you know, specifically the role of government, you know, and you know, everyone feels that, you know, we need to be, you know, trash needs to be collected, we need to be protected, we need to be, you know, provided the same opportunities or the right to employment. And I think that we definitely do need to start teaching that in our college courses because it becomes more that is a great, great, great point. I agree wholeheartedly. Do you think, based on that, spinning off that, that we aid? Is there is there a disconnect between you know what people think about government because of all these national media narratives and campaigning and things like, and they forget about basic services? One and two. Do you think people like us or, or you specifically need to you know we can all do a better job of 
you know, educating people and reminding them of what their local government, what government really is about. Not, And it is about these national narratives, but it's also a lot about, like you said, you keep saying it. It's a great point. Like, who picks up your trash? Like, there's legitimate, tangible things government does. Do we need to do a better job? And, and it, who's doing who's responsible for the fact right now, Reg, that there's a disconnect, that people aren't thinking about garbage pickup. They're thinking only about these huge issues that may or may not pertain to them or their elected officials. I blame the media. <laughs> the media, you know, is, uh, what's happening in Washington and, and hearing Nancy Pelosi, you know, call Donald Trump overweight. Right. That speaks to the media. And I think, you know, the, the average Joe that's picking up my trash, that's not too sexy for media. People don't really care about that. That's just, that's boring. True. I blame the media for that because, you know, you know, we see them in Washington, you know, going back and forth, threatening to shut down the government. And, you know, that looks good. But right. the average Joe out here is literally suffering and struggling while they sit down there in the Ivy, Ivy Towers and their, you know, multi-million dollar you know, paychecks that they're making in salaries and their nice fancy suits and they're debating nothing and doing mm-hmm. nothing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the media coverage it all. And, I, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm not trying to sound like <laughs> the president who calls the media the, the, the greatest enemy in the country, right. but sometimes the media plays a role uh, in, in issues, on issues that, that doesn't matter. And it's actually unfortunate that it's more appealing to them to see, you know, elected officials who should be really pulling up their sleeves and doing the work attack each other through sound bites and, and you know, little smart, like, little shady comments and, you know, over-aggressive tones and, you know, people calling individuals, have you not taken your medication and committee hearings? Yes. You know, that, that's sexy to me. And unfortunately, you know, as a society, that's what we, we've accepted. And, you know, as an individual who's very involved in this stuff, you know, I don't accept that as being the norm. And I was just saying it today that, you know, how many times do we have to pick up the newspaper or hear on the news that there's been a school shooting without anyone actually rolling up their sleeves and actually doing something that's right. like common sense, protecting students or protecting people from gun violence. But that's too much like right and it's too much work for them. They'd rather just have the, the little confide, murky comment and, and attacking one another and actually just sitting down and doing the work. That makes a lot of sense. And like, you know, on this show, like I constantly just hunker down on like the facts, whether, you know, it's not always popular what the fact is. It might get me some hate, like hated on from one side or the other. But I'm just like, yo, if I'm going to have a show, I'm going to just try to get facts and knowledge out so we could get to solutions. And I get what you're saying. It seems like the media, they chase clicks and like controversy so much that they forget that they're supposed to report the facts and let people decide. It's 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 crazy. It's a good point. Now, let me ask you this, like, and, and one of the things, obviously, we discuss in this show a good amount, and it's it's something that this country has to deal with and we continue to deal with and, and whatnot is obviously race. And um, I'm particularly interested on the show on having African-American voices on it frequently because I just think it's a perspective that needs to be heard, especially on based on my demographic. You know, like, there needs to be more discourse and whatnot. I mean, what is the importance as an African-American man yourself and just involved in the community and in politics, I mean, how important is it to get more and more, you know, especially whether young or old, just more African-American voices 
to be in positions like yours where like you have access and you can also be a liaison to just like give more access to more people and help them understand how to access resources and things. Because like you said, when you're inside, you realize how bureaucratic and, and, you know, frustrating it could be. And sometimes people on the outside are just looking at it like that, that city hall or those people, like they don't want to listen to me. How important is it to have more African-American voices in those positions and to be those voices and to be the, be those facilitators. And you can use your personal experience or not in answering that question. Well, I will say that um, it, it's, it's very important um, to have those voices at the table. But unfortunately, what we've seen historically uh, in cities like Newark and Jersey City, um, you know, of course, during the race riots when you know, African-Americans said enough is enough. We're not going to take, you know, being uh, discriminated against right. or oppressed amongst our, amongst our now community uh, when, you know, individuals who do not look like me um, ran the government and basically um, used the system to discriminate against those who flee to the South um, due to Jim Crow. Right. Um, but unfortunately... What we've seen in, in the 1960s and 70s leading up to the present time, that a number of African-Americans who um, obtain positions of leadership and power, um, they're just worried about keeping it. Mm. And mm. unfortunately, those individuals have not um, serviced the community the way I would hope that they would. Mm-hmm. Um, they've actually did a, a hindrance. They've actually done a hindrance to the community. Um, so... You know, you have to just really be within the system, but not of the system. Um, I will always say that you can't you can't change the system looking on the outside, and you have to be within. And right. sometimes you have to play the game. You have to rub the elbows and shake people's hands and, 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 and pretend to be like one of them. Right. But you get into that role. It's your obligation and your responsibility to let people know, hey, I may have started this way, but this is not why I am a different breed than these other individuals. And sometimes what we've seen that these folks who are in leadership, they become, you know, it's, it's like I always say politics on a local level, it's like cornucopia, you just can't get enough of it. You need to have more and more and mm-hmm. more and more. Mm-hmm. And when you have more and more and more, the more you take in terms of power, whatever opportunities that you're there to seek. Um, but these folks haven't done justice to these communities. And we're now seeing a different crop and different breed of leaders that are coming in saying, hey, you know, the same old, same old business as usual is not working. We need to shake up the system. We need to change the status quo. And you have those people who, who like myself, who standing up and saying, hey, you know, government should have should not be this complicated. Giving out right. cookies and during Thanksgiving should not be the norm. <laughs> right. It's really about, you know, help taking individuals from poverty to self-sufficiency and actually letting them know that government is just not here to keep, you know, putting the bandaid on your issues, but also we want to make sure we, we deliver you from those problems. And to say all that, say, unfortunately, and in, in my community, a lot of African-American leaders have not uh, risen to the occasion of being the type of liaison that I am. And um, I, I say this all the time that, you know, it's very, very important. And, you know, that's how people begin to trust people. And when they see individuals like myself and people like um, Josephine Garcia 
And um, these individuals who serve every single day and who give their lives to the community, it, it just begins to build that level of trust. And, and people understand that, you know, if I'm having a problem or whatever it is that I'm going through, that I can always pick up the phone. And right. Reggie or Todd or whoever will have the answer for me or who can guide me in the right direction so that I, I am doing what I have to do or I accomplish what I thought I was doing. That makes sense. Now, to that point, too, I mean, I'm obviously somebody in, you know, who believes that you know, you put the right inputs into something, you can get better results. And I, I like to think of myself as somebody who, you know, does the right thing from the positions that I've obtained over time. And do you think the issue is, do you think we have a lot of people getting into positions for the wrong reasons? Or do you think that once they get in, they become jaded or, or you know, the system takes them and they forget why they got it? What do you think the problem is? You know, like, is it, is it too many of the wrong people getting involved in the first place, or is it too many people getting sidetracked once they get in? I definitely think that um, when folks get involved, their intentions are, are great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but right. unfortunately, as, and that's why I'm such an advocate for term limits, because, mm. you know, like my grandmother always taught me, if you can't accomplish something within the first four years, mm-hmm. um, or if you accomplish it within the, the last eight years, and you're not gonna, you're not gonna accomplish it. Accomplish it. It's time for you to move on and allow somebody else to give, be given the opportunity. But folks start out, you know, with good intentions. But over a course of, you know, I, over the course of years, you know, sometimes the the, the attitude shifts. When you right. run, it's all about I want to serve the people, I love the people, I want to uplift the people. But then, and this is just in, in my view, how I've seen it over the years. Sometimes, you know, human nature just shifts. And it's just because now it's like, I've done this for you and I've done that for that person or this organization. Now the attitude is, what are you going to do for me? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, over time, that's what happens with individuals. I, I don't care if you look at an example of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He, when he ran, he was like the greatest president to give us all these opportunities and, and do so many great things. But then, you know, when you start from like, I run this system. My yeah. system start to pick up that attitude that I'm a power broker, and it's not what what I, what I can do for you; it's what you can do for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, over time, that's what we're seeing um, in in the urban centers up and down the state of New Jersey, uh, specifically in Newark. And you know, unfortunately, that's the reality, and that's human nature that we have to deal with. That makes a lot of sense, and I appreciate you know because you've been just very direct with it, and I, I, I agree with a lot of it. Let me ask you this question: It's a little bit of a pivot, but I think it's kind of relevant, especially in our modern like. And again, this is this is going less practical, but you know we agree on a lot of the practicality stuff. But let's talk about something more abstract, like in a national trend. I mean, right now you you see a lot of um, there's a lot of progress being made and a lot of attention to you know whether it's being made or not you know both racial issues of inequity as well as lgbtq issues of inequity but then there's also some fault lines and i think you could correct me if i'm wrong too if you have a different perspective on it i see a lot of white liberals seem to think oh all the issues are the same they're always compatible we're all here and like sometimes i see if you delve into it like even with the Chappelle documentary and all that i don't want to get into Chappelle very much i mean i think people misunderstand a little but there's a lot there but like 
what do you think of the overall like is there an opportunity for a collective like lgbtq and and african-american issues and black and brown like they i feel like sometimes they try to lump everybody together and sometimes it's all compatible and sometimes maybe there's like different interests competing interests people feel like they're not getting as paid as much attention to what do you think of that whole push like Where's the compatibility? Where's maybe the fault lines? Is it too generalized? Is it is it complex and people are ignoring it? Are people paying attention to it? I mean, what do you see on on that front? I think you would be somebody who would understand those things. And you could elaborate more on that if you choose. I mean, it's up to you. But, you know, what do you think of that whole kind of situation? How do you view that? I, I will um, note two points. Um, these issues are very complex. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, when we're talking about uh, issues uh, around white liberals, um, these are folks, and I hate to like generalize it, but uh, these are folks um, who've gone to school and who received an education. And most of the time in, in liberal arts schools um, and schools around the country, you know, they're given the charge to go back and to change their community. And I can speak from the LGBTQ perspective because I am a very active member in that community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk about things about, you know, things like intersectionality mm-hmm. and um, explaining that, you know, even though there is this umbrella of LGBTQ, you know, inequities that are, that occur, you know, in this country, but, you know, black LGBTQ experience or disabled LGBTQ experience mm-hmm or again, experiences are entirely different because at the end of the day, society does not view those individuals based off of their LGBTQ status. Uh, they're viewed based off of their physical appearance. Right. Then if they're black and gay or if they're disabled, you see those characteristics first before the person is given the opportunity to say, hey, I'm LGBTQ too. Right. And we see a lot of that <laughs> happening in the community where you know, there are just certain, you know, acts of, um, how could I say it, um, just passive or just passive-aggressive uh, behavior that, that happens um, towards uh, Black LGBTQ people. And it's difficult to explain because our, our liberal white counterparts do, do not understand that because they never lived through that through those lenses. And you know, sometimes it can be uh, frustrating mm-hmm. um, because, like, you you're always trying to teach, you know, your your lens or teach your perspective on, you know, how the world views you. And unfortunately, you know, it, it's you know, it's, I always say it's a, a live and learn uh, opportunity. Um, there's no perfect community, you know, right. as long as people are willing, open to learn. And basically, you know, they're keep they're pushing to keep changing um, the wrongs that are happening in society. I think you know that that creates promise mm-hmm. and these struggles. And if we continue to you know have the difficult conversations and to continue to you know exchange views and ideas, you know, we're just doing the work that we should be doing. And we shouldn't just give up on one another, but just continue to educate each other. It makes a lot of sense. And when you say education, I mean, one of the things is, do you think it's maybe important to have like a camaraderie and shared struggle or, or push for, you know, things, but also 
you know, let people listen to the complexities of like individual groups too. Like for instance, we know that African-American trans people are at high, high risk of violence. And, and I think that it's, in my opinion, in, and you could, you know, agree or disagree, there's like a reason for that. Part of it is that less attention we know, like when, when violence occurs to African-American people or, or Native American people, it, it, it gets less attention. People go missing more frequently and there's that whole issue there. And then within the community, sometimes there's, there's animosity towards certain groups. And it's like, you know, the, the, the struggle of a black trans woman has a lot in common with, you know, a white trans woman, but it also has a lot of differences. Doesn't mean they're adverse, but like people have to listen to the unique struggles of individual marginalized groups. And we all have to be open to those discussions, even if people sometimes think it might threaten their own cause. Like you have to be open to listen so we can have practical solutions. You know, would you say there's something to be said for that? I, I, I would definitely. Um, I think what we what happens is that, uh, uh, for example, we've normalized uh, the fact that uh, trans black women are uh, susceptible to violence. Mm-hmm. Um, that's become normalized, and I think you know, unfortunately, we have to get our, our counterparts to understand that it's just it's it's not enough for it to just be a talking point on a piece of paper in a right. speech. But what are you actually actually doing? Um, to change some of the, the lived experiences of black trans people, but also just African American people in general. Yeah. And, you know, it's not an attack on you or any views that you may hold deeply to yourself. If you just acknowledge, you know, the struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was watching a podcast um, that talked about this. Mm-hmm. Um, talked about black murder being normalized and mm-hmm. and the fact that you know black young girls or black children are often gone missing um for years or you know and it's not as widely reported versus our counterparts mm-hmm. um, because it, it's become normalized that you know our lives those lives are not as valued in society unfortunately as other lives are used and you know Again, I go back to, you know, media platforms and, you know, a lot of the hip-hop rap music does not help uh, this situation because it, it just perpetuates the fact that, you know, acts of violence are done often on people of color, on people of color, by people of color. And, you know, by that being, you know, heavily publicized um, in the media, you know, it, it be it begins to desensitize how people view black lives. Yes. And, you know, people within my community are, they're the culprits of it. And, you know, when we start to begin to change those lens and change the dialogue and actually begin to talk about, you know, uplifting um, young black girls and, you know, the show like Black Girls Rockin', you know, um, empowering young boys like my friends would do the male empowerment program and, and all the men of color will come dressed in, in suits and ties and we start normalizing that and we start putting that on the front page of the paper on, all, on every media outlet then you'll start to get individuals who don't think like me or look like me to view those lives differently it's so profound and I actually agree with every bit of it 
and I, I, I think you'd probably know that about me based on knowing me a while. I think, do you think like what everything you just said to me rings out like black lives matter, but, but not in necessarily the slogan, the way people sometimes view it. And also black empowerment, black power. Do you think those terms sometimes are, are misconstrued or not properly proliferated or like everything you just said to me is an uplifting black empowerment mechanism. Do you think that term has been sometimes not misconstrued because black power could also be the Panthers and and not taking it anymore and and militantism, but it's also incorporates like the suits, the pride, the uplifting, the inspiration that you can do what you want. You can be a business owner. You can be an entrepreneur, you you know, celebrate black excellence. Do you think there's a bit of a disconnect in society with those phrases and terms that people associate the connotation with one thing and not the other? Do you think that that's somewhat of a, a dialogue that needs tweaking. Definitely. And um, I would say that uh, we, we have this one perspective of what black power means or black empowerment means. And I think the, the only issue is that, unfortunately, you asked the average Joe, um, what is black empowerment? What is black power? And they'll, they'll definitely, uh, they'll say, oh, that means that, uh, you know, uh, a group, who tried to overthrow the government, right. who, um, who, who believed in, you know, taking down or supporting communism. And, you know, we, we as a society have accepted, um, you know, what society has said about those, those terms. And, you know, unfortunately, we have new leaders who who have evolved from those ideas, or those principles. We have yeah. leaders who, who's taken black power or black excellence and who's redefined it, who's reimagined it and changed it and made it something entirely different. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, what we've seen that most of society don't even know what that means. And yeah. we, the media and people of color have to do a better job in, in teaching that and educating people about that because, you know, there are folks who are amazing allies of the African-American community and they they've made it a part of their lifestyle to understand, you know, what black excellence and what black power means. And and Larry, I think that you're one of those individuals who who's who's always supportive supportive, you know, of, of my community and who's always there to make sure that, you know, the needs and, you know, how we're viewed in society is supported. Right. And I think we have to do a better job in doing that you know, as, as people of color, but also as a community and, and not just so narrowly focusing on, you know, what historically people have said about those movements. I think that's 100% true. And I, I appreciate what you said, because I think, I think white people and allies and they have to do a better job too, right? Because, and I, and we're, and I'm just letting you know, the stream's going to cut me off. Cause it's like, we have one minute, it's going to cut me off. But so I want to make sure we, we end right. But because it's been such a great interview and I really appreciate you coming on, but it's like white people have allies have to do a better job too, though. Right. Cause you know me, like I, my understanding of it is what you're saying. And that's why I don't always go with just like the leftist thing. Every time I go with the empowerment thing. And I think a lot of white people too need to also do a better job of listening and understand 
like there's a difference between patronization and empowerment, you know, and mm-hmm. it's important. And we're running out of time, Rich. I just want to, you have 30 seconds. It's your final word. I, I don't mean to rush you off. It was an awesome interview. I just had to get to the other stuff, but yeah, I, I, I loved having you. I'll have you back on too, but go ahead and say bye, whatever you want to say. No, you, you, uh, you understand and I appreciate that, but I just want to thank you so much for giving me the opportunity and the platform to be on here. Um, allowing me to share this space with you and your listeners. Uh, it's much appreciated. I look forward to coming back and uh, you have a dope audience. I see you have a strong following and um, I'm looking to connect and get to know these people as well. Awesome, so Reg. You. And we'll do that. And I'll talk to you as soon as we're off the air.